Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome uh, to everyone who's uh, here tonight uh, in the historic great room of the RSA. And welcome um, also to, to the many people joining us online, hopefully. My name is Stuart Jeffries, and I'll be the host for the evening. I'm delighted to be joined today by Alison Bashford and, of course, Thomas Dixon. Let me introduce well, let me introduce you both. If you want to object to anything I'm going to say, please do. Thomas is a historian of philosophy, science, medicine and religion with a particular expertise in the history of emotions and in Victorian intellectual and cultural history. He joined the School of History at Queen Mary in 2007 and since 2008 has been a member of the Queen Mary Centre for the History of Emotions. What a great name for a centre. <laughs> Alison is the Laureate Professor of History at the University of New South Wales. In 2020, she was awarded the Royal Society of New South Wales History and Philosophy of Science Medal for transformative historical studies of the biomedical and environmental sciences. In 2021, she was awarded the Dan David Prize for Scholarship in the History of Medicine. But to add to those achievements, Alison is also the author of a book that I was really looking forward to getting for Christmas, this one, which is just such a wonderful book. It's a monumental new biography of the Huxley family, and we'll be focusing on the research that she's done for the book in our discussion today. Before we get started, I'm going to do some really boring housekeeping. We've saved plenty of time for audience questions, so please do get thinking about what you'd like to ask. And if you're watching online, you can submit those questions in the live chat and they'll make it to, their way to me on this device here. If you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag, hashtag uh, RSA Huxley. Please do get involved, sharing your thoughts, quotes, and images. Well, I, I just a few words before Alison's going to introduce her book. I, I, I reviewed it for The Observer, and I, I kind of really loved it. Um, I just did the trashy journalistic thing initially, because she writes about this guy who, who wrote to Julian in the 1930s saying, Dear Sir, may I have um, some of your genetic tissue so, for artificial insemination purposes? So, my so polite. <laughs> the idea was that he thought there was some sort of, I think he thinks there was some sort of genius gene whereby um, the, the, the great Huxley family might have something to contribute to his, well, his offspring. Um, I think he kind of misunderstood how, how that works. But nonetheless, you can understand why people would think that Huxley's were somehow an extraordinary family who had something to pass on. Thomas was extraordinary as a, as a, a zoologist. Um, Julian, his grandson, was e equally extraordinary. But there are also, you know, you, you don't really re write about Aldous very much in the book, but he's in the shadows and he's coming through. And there are, there are, you know, there are physiologists, there are anthropologists, all of whom are just very, very clever people. So one kind of thinks, and I want to explore the extent to which the Huxleys were geniuses and how, how they influenced each other and, and all of that. Mm. The other thing that really struck me when I read, read the book is that, and I said this to you before, is, is that you're a woman and I think it's, you wrote a very different book than a man would have written. Um, I'm really struck there are several great women bog group biographers at the moment. Um, you know, thinking of um, people like, uh, well, um, pe people that, like, um, Andrea Wolfe, who recently wrote a book about uh, the, the Goethe, Schiller, and the whole Jena family. But she, she wrote really interestingly about the intelligent women who were there, not in the background at all, but were in the foreground in, and, and very influential. And you brought out in your book lots of people I kind of heard of, you know, but 
wasn't very sure about, who were women who were really bright, really intellectual, and really challenging the, the, the you know, patriarchal authority, which I thought was really interesting. So I think he brings something really new to the, to, 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 uh, the subject matter there. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about very briefly is that, the, the, for all that, they're not just dead white men. I think we, the, the important thing to stress with your book is, is that we live in the shadow of these two guys. We live in the shadow of the Huxleys. You know, we live in a. You, you talk at some point about the, uh, we live in a sort of neoliberal version of the sort of transhumanist um, IVF kind of world that uh, Julian wrote about. They would say that we live in their light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not the shadow, in their light, absolutely. Yeah. Well, with that thought in mind, I mean, would you like to. Um, hand, I'll hand over to you so you can give a Thank quick you. overview of your book. Thank you. Thank you. And already there's, there's many points there that I'd love to. To talk about. Thank you, everybody, for, for coming and pe people zooming in. So this this book has been a long time coming for me, um, and really it started less with the Huxleys than the idea of wanting to write a big book about uh, evolutionary theories and ideas about inheritance over the whole 19th and 20th century. Um, but I needed a kind of an anchor. And after a while, the Huxleys, who have been lurking for me for, you know, since writing undergraduate essays, like so many of us, um, one can't be a historian of science and not know somewhere along the line about the Huxleys. They, they um, appeared um, as, as good anchors to think about these ideas over the long 19th and 20th centuries. And for that reason, the, the, the generations, the two people that I focus on in this book, although there are many Huxleys and many other people, the p two people who, I, who um, were most useful and lively, I think, for that purpose was Thomas Henry Huxley, who's well known as Darwin's bulldog, the great defender of um, Darwin's radical uh, controversial idea, evolution by natural selection, the specific idea of natural selection. And then his grandson, Julian Huxley, brother of Aldous, who's uh, probably the best known, perhaps, out of all of them. Um, um, Aldous's older brother he is. And Julian Huxley was a, a 20th century life. Um, he was the first director general of UNESCO. He directed the London Zoo for, in critical years in the late 1930s and into the war years. Um, he was involved in um, mid-20th century <coughs> conservation movements. He was deeply involved in um, various, part, various countries and emerging uh, post-colonial states in Africa and the idea of um, reserves for wildlife. So he's, he's in some ways, a Julian Huxley, I think, is best described as the antecedent to David Attenborough in some mm. ways because he... Um, I want to say pioneered. I've had a little bit of discussion about this with David Attenborough, who's not quite convinced that Julian Huxley was a pioneer. I think so. He, he, Julian Huxley made many, many natural history films in the 1930s. He even won an Oscar for a, nat a natural history film before the genre was really even a thing. So, you know, he, Julian Huxley became very important to me to anchor the 20th century and as a balance to the great science scientist and science writer, his grandfather in the 19th century. And around them, I could build the other stories um, through the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, the, the great story that the Huxleys are the center of, of humanism, of the undoing of God, as Thomas Henry Huxley would have said, the idea that um, 
uh, our understanding of nature needs to be evidence-based that we can sense, not based on things that we can't know. Thomas Henry Huxley invented the word agnostic. His son, a grandson, Julian, invented the word transhumanism. So there's this long humanist um, uh, thread that, that I could uh, uh, use the Hux Huxleys to think, think through as well. And um, for me, the two of them become really important because although both of them, and I hope we get time to discuss this, were really important to the development of human sciences. Mm. Thomas Henry Huxley literally begins anthropology in London. Um, psychology is very important to Thomas Henry Huxley. Julian follows that through. So although the human scientists and how to think about humans as natural beings is really important, um, behind that, the two of them were zoologists of all kinds of other creatures than humans. So the two of them kind of matched each other in the 19th and 20th centuries about how we are to think about all kinds of animals, creatures of the sea and creatures of the sky. So they proved for me, I, I hope, successful as a way to think through a long history of how um, zoologists thought about animals, how zoologists thought about humans as animals, and the responses to um, those um, quite controversial ideas. Mm. You start the book, well, you, you do the book in a really interesting way. You could have done it in a sort of straightforward narrative way. You know, you could have start, done a, a Tristram Shandy, start before you know, Thomas is born and then bring it all the way through. Or you could have started with him on HMS Rattlesnake and you know, carried it all the way through in a, in a narrative line. You do something much more you know, difficult for you. you know, you've really given a, made a rod for your own back by creating these sort of thematic chapters where you switch backwards and forwards between Thomas and Julian. And I think it leads to a really rich book. Um, Thank you. Why, why did you, choo why did you choose you. to write that way? Thank what, you. I, 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 part of me is smiling because I always tell my PhD, I'm a history professor, I always tell my PhD students who come in with grand thematic schemas to drop the thematics yeah, yeah. and just, um, just do the simple version. Um, and I could have told myself that, but I hope it's worked this way. I started, strangely, um, to think of the grandfather and the grandson as one very long-lived man. Mm born in 1825 and died in 1975. And so for me, as a historian who rather likes um, long periods of time and telling long, long and big stories is, is my particular way of being a historian. Thinking of them as one long-lived man proved quite useful. And once I started doing, once in my mind I started doing that, actually thinking, writing chapters thematically became the obvious thing to do, mm. if the tricky thing to do. Mm. You know, so I could write about what they both, over these long periods, thought about primates, for example. What they both thought about when they, when they um, were, were writing about birds or creatures of the sea. What they both thought about when, over the 19th and 20th century, this one long-lived man, so to say, thought about human prehistory and started to think about human and planetary futures. Mm. And in a way, doing it that way um, made me, made, um, it gave me a structure, I think, to do my favorite thing, which is to tell big stories. Mm. So rather than being caught in the very, very interesting lives, admittedly, structuring each chapter that way allowed me to do the, 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 the big story again and again, hopefully without too much repetition. Yeah, yeah. 
The other thing is that they're, they're both polymaths, which I think is a, you know, for, it's a question for both of you. Really. They're both polymaths. And maybe we feel a kind of nostalgia for, for, mm -hmm. for those kind of guys who could be polymaths. You know, I just read a book biography of hum von Humboldt in it. And one of the things you, you, you think about him is just, my God, he was a poet as well, you know, and he was, he, he was covering all these disciplines. These guys were inventing all these disciplines, pretty much. And how, you know, how d dismal it must be to be a scientist now when you can't do that kind of stuff. <laughs> so dismal, so dismal. <laughs> they would think so. Ah, right. I, I think they would, even Julian Huxley, 20th century Julian Huxley, would probably think it's dismal. And why don't you know more about philosophies of mind or... Why can't you, like he did, like all the Huxley family did, write poetry out of hours? <laughs> you know, these, this is a literary family as well. But the poetry was of mixed quality, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> some of it I actually did love and spent some time looking at it, and others I thought, hmm, yeah, well, he was a scientist, you know. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Thomas Henry in particular, who's my sort of favourite Huxley, you know, I first got into the Huxley family through as I was telling Alison, writing my master's dissertation many years ago about Thomas Henry Huxley and his views on science and religion. He's this incredible autodidact. You know, as you say, his only schooling was for a couple of years in this failing school in Ealing run by his poor dad, who wasn't a great success as a, as a teacher. Right. Um, and other than that, it was pretty much self-taught, and he was learning you know, philosophy, political thought, Greek, Latin. He taught himself biblical Hebrew at one point in his life as well. He was quite artistic, Thomas, and uh, you know, like sketching and so on. Yeah. And it, it's just quite incredible the the, the, the sheer work ethic and, and the sort of autodidactic kind of attitude. But of course, you know, there was no TikTok, there was no Nintendo. You know, I look at point, Thomas yeah. Henry Huxley's childhood, and I look at my kids, and I feel like, come <laughs> on, <do> you know, <laughs> why haven't you learned German yet? Yeah, <laughs> why haven't you taught yourself uh, political thought from Rousseau onwards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's quite quite true, and I think that. Um, you know, in a way, the shadow of this book is the Darwin family, very connected to the Huxleys. Mm. But these families are a completely different class orders. Mm. You know, so, so, so Darwin's family's wealthy. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. Thomas Henry Huxley comes from a not wealthy, you know, literate, lower, lower middle class, not much money. And the family moves to Coventry, uh, as, as you know. And there, um, Thomas Henry Huxley is apprenticed to a doctor when he's 13 and he has to work and he does work from then until his early retirement. And so that he is a polymath around that, it, it makes him extra um, uh, one, wonderful in, in my view. And so his, his personal story is someone who teaches himself um, out of not poverty, but lower middle class decline, I think, is the best way of putting it. He's a medical apprentice. He's miserable as an apprentice. And he moves from Coventry to the Docklands and is re-apprenticed here in the Docklands in the East End. <coughs> and by night, he's lighting a candle and teaching himself. Imagine all of our children are on Nintendo or whatever the latest version is. Imagine him lighting the candle after hours, after a day as a 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old dispensing and dissecting and, you know, he's lighting the candle, learning Greek, teaching himself German philosophy. Yeah. But the the antecedents to all the people that you know about, but, but you know. You romance his wife with a 12-volume copy of, of Schiller, which That's of course right. has never worked for me. Wouldn't that win you over? <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. So there's a German um, language and German literature and German philosophy that, is that, that I wasn't that aware of, but really yeah. drives through the generations of, of Huxley's. Aldous and, um, Aldous and Julian and the rest of that generation 
are taught always. There's an upward, upward mobility in the family. Mm. By the time you get two generations later to the grandchildren, oldest Julian and the rest of that generation, they're being taught by German governesses. Mm. So there's just enough money to bring somebody into the family to be a governess, always German. Mm. And uh, so they were expected to be literate in German philosophy, German literature, German language. Why? I mean, why, why German rather than, say, French? Why, you know, why, you know, cause we, 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 we talk about Cuvier and Lamarck and the influences they have on evolutionary theory, but so what was going on in Germany that made that interesting? No, it is very, it, it's a really good question. Of course, they all learn French as well, but there's yeah. a German yeah. thing. So, so, so for Thomas Henry Huxley, there's, there's scientifically, when he's just becoming less a doctor and more a natural scientist, the idea of the cell is being um, uncovered and thought through for the first time in Germany. And in the 1830s and 40s and just, in, that's where you start getting this really interesting divergence from all of that French scholarship, the Cuvier and so forth, mm. that is about classification. Mm. In Germany in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, when he's just, well he's born in the 1830s, uh, when he's just learning his natural science, the cutting edge was this new microscopic work about this thing called the cell that may be the origin of all life. And so he's diverted into German scholarship at that point. Right, right. It's also quite a German ideal, the kind of romantic polymath, you know, the kind of romantic natural Absolutely, science. Yeah. Um, it's quite a sort of German ideal. But Huxley was a bit of a show-off as well. I mean, he quoted Dante in Italian in his writings. <laughs> he, he quotes in French, in German. You know, he, was, he, he didn't mind showing his, his abilities. Yeah. I, I, I want to make a defence of Eton, though, at this point, because oh my goodness. Julian went to Eton, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, unlike the Etonians who've run this country for the past few years, he was actually quite a bright guy and cultured and you know, intellectual. <laughs> Sorry, to <laughs> <for the> politics. <laughs> you don't have to go there if you don't want to. No, 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 no. He was all those things, but he was also miserable at Eton. Oh yeah, but are they all were. But again, that's the, the great contrast between Thomas and Julian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thomas, you know, had almost no schooling and this very, you know, sort of difficult childhood. Julian's going to Eton That's two right. generations later, which is testament to the, the, the establishment figure that the Huxley, the elder, had become and the privilege mm. he was able to pass on to his children and grandchildren. That's right, he went to Eton. It's an incredible family story. Two generations after the 13-year-old apprenticeship, um, grandson Eton ju uh, just scraped in, was miserable. Um, <laughs> and then he went to Balliol in Oxford and unsurprisingly read... Uh, zoology and biology uh, uh, there. So, so that generational shift is quite significant. You talk about, you know, the, 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 it could have been the story of one man, but actually there's a, there's a huge difference between what the, you know, Darwin's bulldog, as it were, yes. he's, he's prophesizing for, for Darwin. When Julian starts work in zoology, Darwin's kind of, for a moment at least, seems to be, uh, be, be becoming obsolete because of the impact of... Um, Mendelian genetics and all that. Could you talk a little bit about all that? Yes, yes. And so, in a way, once I landed on the Huxleys as a way of a way to anchor my long 20th century story of ideas about evolution and then inheritance, um, there were some counterintuitive things went on. One was that, you know, although Thomas Henry Huxley is always remembered as Darwin's bulldog, which he was, um, in fact, Darwin had Charles Darwin had to do a little bit of quite a bit of persuading. Um, around this idea of natural selection. So Thomas Henry Huxley didn't just fold into the idea and he said, you know, I'll really believe it when the evidence appears and slowly over his lifetime, 
the fossil evidence, the paleontological evidence, um, did appear for Thomas, enough for Thomas Henry Huxley to say, yes, I, this provable hy hypothesis is now proven and I'm with you. So there was a kind of a, um, um, an agnosticism, actually, wait till you show me. Mm. Um, but then his grand, but by the time Julian, his grandson, is learning um, uh, biology at, mm. at, at, in Oxford around 1905, 1906, actually Darwin's idea were at this, this um, they weren't obsolete. No. They were at a bit of a low point because there were some technical problems which Darwin himself knew about and they were coming to the fore. And by that generation, everybody was thinking, mm, we're not sure this, this particular problem about breeding and inbreeding might undo this idea of natural selection. And then Mendel's genetics comes along and it, it all throws um, Darwin's idea asunder about the turn of the century. And then Julian Huxley himself actually writes the story as the birth, death, and rebirth of Darwinism. And of course, he casts himself as central to the rebirth of Darwinism with his 1940s book, um, Evolution, the Modern Synthesis. Mm. And the synthesis is the bringing together of Darwin's ideas and Mendel's ideas, evolution and inheritance and genetics. And so they proved quite an interesting um, couple of generations to think through those changes as well. The, the man who wrote that letter to Julian in the 30s um, perhaps should have realised that there was a history of uh, depression and mental illness that ran through the family, not just Julian and not just Thomas, but their, their, well, Thomas's father, Julian's brother. And there's a great history of um, depression and mental illness. What, that's true. What can you say about that? I mean, how, how, how does that tie into the... Uh, is that the, in, you know, the opposite of the genius gene? You know, is it, is, is there a, was there a sense that one might inherit these depressive qualities? Did Julian inherit some of the depression that his grandfather he, suffered? He, he did, and you would know, having written your master's thesis, I'm <laughs> sure there's something in there that you would have picked up on about Julian's... Um, Thomas Henry Huxley's melancholy, mm. as he, as he called it. Yes, right. so he certainly had those periods where he couldn't work, but they were quite short periods. Uh, for Thomas Henry, you know, when, right. when you know, his friends rallied around and had to support him um, to have a little, just, you know, his friends would go and say to him, you've got to just have a break. You know, he was working flat out, as you say, from the age of 13 through, through to when he retired. But I wonder if the, you know, the, the, the depression and the work ethic and the, the sort of romantic genius is all bound up together, culturally at right. least, isn't it? Right. Um, I don't know about genetically, probably I'd be sceptical about that, but, but culturally, the romantic genius is melancholy and troubled. Are, are they not? Thoughts too deep for tears. Mm. Mm. I mean, mm. I'm not sure that, it, for me, the idea of, um, as we sit in this very 18th century building, the idea of genius and melancholy as kind of two sides, I think is more an 18th century idea. Yeah. I'm not sure that Thomas Henry Huxley, were he sitting here, would quite see himself. He would be, he would put himself much more in the hard work basket. If you light your candles and think long enough and hard enough. I'm, I'm not sure that he would have... Uh, well, Julian maybe Martin. that's my interpretation more. Maybe he wouldn't, he wouldn't recognise that. I mean, certainly the trope is still with us and has existed you know, throughout yeah. the 19th yes. and 20th centuries. But I, mean, I agree, Thomas Henry Huxley might not have embraced it consciously himself. There's a, there's a line that I, that, that I noticed in your book of, of Huxley talking about feelings, Thomas Huxley talking about feelings. And he says, there is a superabundance of feelings already. We don't need any more. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas we do need more sort of clear-sighted scientific rationalism. And that was a great sort of Thomas Huxley quote. We don't need any more. 
emotional feelings. Yes, but it is quite true that by the time, um, by the time Julian and Aldous's generation come along, you know, um, you know, and they're young, let's say, before the First World War, mm. um, and during the war, and certainly just after, in that period, Julian Huxley is suffering terribly. Mm. You know, these are paralyzing depressions, mm. uh, and Julian Huxley, it, for me, is all the more extraordinary because he achieved what he achieved, wrote what he wrote, made, one in, one, made all of those films, um, ran a lot of organisations in between mm. depressions that put him in hospitals for of various kinds for months on end, mm. sometimes six-month periods. And in a way, I feel um, free, as it were, to write about this in the book because Julian yeah. Huxley himself is entirely forthcoming, more forthcoming than I am. This is not an expose in any sense. Mm. It, it's an analysis because... Um, but, but I'm not saying anything that Julian Huxley himself or his family had, uh, hadn't said themselves. But what become, became really interesting to me is that it's not incidental that this family is a family for whom various kinds of melancholy or depression, and the dif mm. different words come up, uh, is inherited through the family. Um, mm. That's interesting in and of itself, but for me the point was that this was something that they both that they all experienced, but actually thought of. So this was intellectual business for them, because this is a family for whom inheritance, traits, characters, the idea yeah. of what is and isn't inherited, what does or doesn't pass on and inhere in us from one generation to another, is something that was both deeply fascinating and important intellectually, as well as something that they had to experience for better or worse, mainly for worse. Yeah, and, and that leads us in, in a way to talk about um, Julian's interest in uh, eugenics yes. and his defence of eugenics, even after World War II, um, when he got a lot of stick for that. Um, some, some of the reviews of, of your book have taken, taken Huxley's to task for being racist eugenicists. Yes. Um, they weren't, as far as I can tell, no. um, at all. So could you talk no. a little bit about that? No, this is what people want to say and yeah. want, want to think, actually, for, for reasons that were evident to many of us back when we wrote our 1980s essays on these matters. So, you know, it, 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 um, can we find bigotry in Thomas Henry Huxley's or Julian Huxley's work? Yes, in a nanosecond. Anybody right. can do that easily. Um, did we do all do that a long time ago? Yes. Um, is it still true? Yes. Is that the end of the story? No. <laughs> you know, so it is the case, and to me it's much more interesting to explain how and why um, someone like Thomas Henry Huxley you know, could, could and did write and say and think and believe all kinds of things that are egregious mm. and at the same time be um, one of the more prominent London um, abolitionists and anti-slavery activists is the wrong word. His, his ideas were used by London abolitionists is the better way of putting it. Well, didn't you think slavery would be a good thing to get rid of from the, for the benefit of the slave master rather than the slave? This is true. And so, so one of my points is that, you know, in a, in a way, in opposition to the often crude um, and easy critique of a family like the Huxleys as racist scientists, mm. I mean, that's the easiest thing in the world to mm. say. And it doesn't catch anything about their world, actually, as far as I know. And of course it says important things about now. Mm. 
But anti-racism has a history too. And so, so it's quite a hard idea. So when we think about Thomas Henry Huxley as being opposed to slavery, there's many different reasons for which one, one can be an abolitionist in the 1860s. And the kind of thin reason that he's an abolitionist um, is that um, the master of the enslaved person is kind of caught within a system. And you're quite right. Mm. He, he wrote to his family, actually he wrote to his beloved sister who for strange reasons had moved to the United States and had moved to Tennessee. Oh, wow, right. And his nephew fought for the Confederates and his sister lived in the South in the middle of the American Civil War. And Thomas Henry Huxley is ex writing to her explaining why he's opposed to slavery. But he says the benefit is at least as much, if not more, for the master as for the enslaved person. Mm. You know, so you can be anti-slavery and we can, still, um, we can still disagree. I've had quite interesting conversations with some of my American history colleagues who actually suggest to me that Abraham Lincoln had a not dissimilar argument actually right. uh, in, in opposition to slavery. So, Historicizing anti-racism is, is itself can sometimes be a tricky thing. And also the interesting thing about, about Julian is that he, 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 he tries to explode the whole notion of race anyway. That's right. Um, which That's is kind right. of significant. So he's, 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 he's calling him a racist is kind of to misconstrue twice over in a way. You know, he didn't think there was race, race, uh, race as a, such. As, as, a as a biological well, so category. So you can say he was a racist in a way. Uh, yes. You know, we can say that Julian Huxley wrote ridiculously superior and colonial books about Africa and really many does. other. Yeah. You know, we can certainly say that. Um, but, it, but I think we also need to recognise that we in the present are beneficiaries of Julian Huxley's work undoing the biological category of race with careful and quite complicated population genetics. So in the middle of the fascist 1930s, he um, puts himself on the line mm. and writes very, very important anti-racist books um, with respect to Japan, with respect to Nazi Germany, with respect to Italy, Italian fascism, uh, and then drives that forward in his United Nations anti-racist uh, work as well. On, on that, there's one small point I thought was really interesting, and Alison writes about this in a very nuanced way in her mm. book about both the 19th and 20th century context, is that both Thomas and Julian, um, what they would not sign up to was the concept of equality. Right? So there were various sort of liberal values that they would sign up to that most of us would sign up to today, but they drew the line at an equality, and they said, you know, in nature there is not equality. People are not equal in their physical and mental attributes, and I will not say that they are. And that was a sticking point for both of them, which I found very interesting. It's not so surprising for Thomas, but for Julian, he was, he, he was more out on a limb, I would say, taking that line in, in the 20th century. Whereas Thomas Huxley, we can see him as a sort of liberal Victorian, many of the vices of Victorians. And he wrote that famous essay called Emancipation Black and White, mm. in which he says, you know, by nature, women and non-white people are inferior. Let's not make it any worse. You know, through our political institutions, which is a very sort of Victorian yeah. uh, attitude, whereas Julian is taking a similar line, getting on for 100 years later. Are, are they sort of social Darwinists, both of them, in, in that Herbert Spencer sense? Oh, and 
is social Darwinist? I never know what social Darwinism <laughs> ends up well, being. Well, just a sense you can use evolutionary theory to, to proselytise for, <coughs> you know, survival of the fittest and the kind of some horrible neoliberal agenda that we're Thomas probably Thomas Henry Huxley less so, wouldn't you say? Yes, and, and the, thing, the thing about that phrase social Darwinism is that, yeah. unfortunately, it, it groups together people doing quite opposing things with evolutionary theory mm. while still using yes. it as a way to try and understand society. So you can have people using evolution, in effect, like someone like Peter Kropotkin, who was an anarchist mm. sort of socialist, trying to put forward... Um, uh, a, a loosely speaking, a left-wing view of, of, of altruism and cooperation being natural. Then you have someone like Herbert Spencer trying to put forward a kind of Liz Truss view of the world, <laughs> um, as we can now call she it. Has on, a view of the world on, on the basis <laughs> of, of evolution, yeah, sort of hyper individualism. Yeah. Um, so social Darwinism c c contains within it rather a multitude of things. Thomas Henry Huxley was more on the Kropotkin sort of side of things. Like he was very willing to use evolution to think about society, and his Romanes lectures, Evolution and Ethics, in 1893, are absolutely brilliant, and um, used the idea of kind of horticulture and keeping a garden as a way to think about evolution and human society. So he didn't mind transposing those metaphors across, but he, he wasn't a social Darwinist in the... Herbert Spencer or, or Liz Truss sense. <laughs> and I do think it's important to recognise, um, and this is why anybody, you know, people who want to just do that crude and easy thing of saying, oh, Thomas Henry Huxley yeah. was a racist eugenicist. Yeah. Uh, there's just a level at which it's incorrect. Yeah. So actually, Thomas Henry Huxley, the idea of eugenics or, or human improvement at a population and individual level into the future was something that... Thomas Henry Huxley is on record as not actually being so sure about yeah. at all. Mm. And so it's just becoming, it just moves into public conversation towards the end of his life. Uh, and in fact, far from folding into that idea or the social Darwinist idea, in fact, he's not at all sure about it. Yeah. And in fact, it's the 20th century Huxley's, uh, Julian in particular, <coughs> who ends up being the president of the Eugenics Society here in London, 1959 to 1962, if I remember correctly, no less. So, as you say, right in the period when yeah. you think uh, after the Second World War, after the Holocaust, after the trials, the last point in the 20th century at which you'd, th want, you'd think an anti-racist would be a eugenicist is then. Yeah. But Julian Huxley defends the idea um, to the day he dies in 1975. And, and that was, sorry, no, go, go, one of several points of which, I mean, I came to this book sort of biased in favour of Thomas, <laughs> who has been a hero of mine since I was in my 20s Great. in various ways, sort of intellectually. And um, it, in, in some ways, my, my, my sort of bias was reinforced by reading the book. And on this point about belief in progress and belief in humanity, I found myself looking at Julian and thinking, if only you'd been a bit more like your grandfather, you know, because Thomas Henry was much more sceptical both about humanity as an object of sort of ideal um, sort of worship and ab about progress. And as you say, uh, Thomas Henry was quite good at cri critiquing the idea that evolution leads to progress. He writes quite forcefully, evolution leads to being well adapted to your environment, whatever that may happen to be, and it may not be progress. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas Julian seems to me unfortunately uh, attached to the idea both of progress and of human progress as being the sort of goal of science and civilization in a way that I, I personally think was, you know, was, was misguided. Mm. That said, you, you, write all the, you write a really ardent uh, chapter, I think, about, about the eugenic future in which you say, this is, we, we, we live in a neoliberal choice-oriented, sorry, a neoliberal choice-oriented eugenics has become more or less normalised a continuation of Darwin, Galton and Huxley's world, much as we like to imagine that we live in refusal of it. 
So, you know, less fit future humans are every day diagnosed and made unviable in utero. So we, we live in a sort of perverted version of the world that they wanted. I think we do. We don't want to, we don't want to admit that, mm. but I think either in this book or I've written about eugenics for such a long time now, I can't remember. <laughs> but, you know, there's a way in which we don't want to think we live in a eugenic world, right. but in fact all kinds of quite low-tech um, interventions, not high-tech interventions, not even genetic interventions, low-tech interventions into reproduction mm. that happen all the time as we speak now, 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 um, is, no is normalised and they should be. Mm. Um, and uh, the eugenicists of early uh, eras would have been absolutely delighted with all kinds of outcomes, lower fertility rates, the fact and I'm not, I'm not an advocate of this, but I'm just saying it's a fact that all kinds of things that we both are used to, want, like, or even dislike, they're a fact, are um, interventions into reproduction that earlier generations who belong to the eugenic society would have been absolutely thrilled to know uh, norm, uh, are now normalised. Mm. There's a, a Michelle Welbeck novel in which he sort of says that forget about Aldous and what he said in Brave New World, Walter Reed Julian Huxley, because he's the guy who really nailed the way we do live and the way we really, we've always wanted to live. Mm. Do you think that's right? Uh, uh, p possibly. <laughs> I do, possibly. No, I think he, he, he's got an eye on the future. So one of the, one of the lovely things to kind of play with, I think, as a, as a writer here, was that Thomas Henry Huxley... Um, was, 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 was thinking about humans at a time when literally time on Earth and human history was getting longer and longer. You know, when he's born, the Earth is 6,000 years old, <laughs> and year by year it's getting older and older. And so there's a kind of a moment for Thomas Henry Huxley when he's looking, well, all natural scientists are looking backwards. Time is... Uh, the t the it's, a t it's a, an amazing kind of time revolution. Yeah. But Julian Huxley is always looking for forward in time. He's kind of a futurist, like oldest. Mm. You know, so, so these, these brothers, are, are, they're not twins, they're actually years apart, but sometimes I think of them as also one person, twinned with this futurist mm. idea, and one does it in science fiction, and one does it in beautiful non-fiction mm -hmm. and, and, and the phenomenon of the essay, um, but they're looking to the future and what might be in dystopian and utopian futures. And so Julian Huxley, you know, it's very interesting, I think, about writing about the whole planet, the whole Earth, you know, uh, ways of thinking about the globe that are in fact quite familiar to us. What might the Earth be like 10,000 years hence? Mm -hmm. And then he says, in a still a really challenging way, what might the earth be like with or without humans? Right. You know, and so we, in a way the resonance there with our own Anthropocene ideas is a very true one. Yeah. And I think that in so many ways their antecedents to, um, their antecedents to the current kind of planetary discussion. Mm. And H.G. Wells is a very nice thread that yes. takes us through from through the generations, mm. from the student of Thomas Huxley in South mm. Kensington, then co-author with Julian Huxley. And when you're saying there about you know, scientific visions of the future, you think of the time machine 
as this incredibly right. chilling uh, vision of the future based on evolutionary thought, which he had learned from, from Thomas Huxley, and where he had learned maybe the idea that you know, not all evolution is progress. You've got humankind, as you probably know, divided into these two future races. Well, I won't go into the whole plot of that book. But anyway, H.G. Wells has got a nice role in this book, linking up some of these Huxley thoughts. Yeah. That's right, and I think that um, it's, it's, it's quite clear that Aldous's genius, if I can use that word, doesn't come from nowhere. Mm. It comes out of a family for whom thinking about um, humans' reproduction in limited spaces and in, in a kind of a space-time axis is something that gave Aldous as much to think through and write about. When that's layered over with this other great Huxley um, po uh, politics, this is, this is a family of biologists and zoologists who were never apolitical. They knew from beginning to end right, that yeah. everything you say about science had a political implication. This is a deeply political family. And Aldous comes out of that as well. And that kind of, by their generation, the kind of left politics that the brothers share, Aldous and, and Julian, and one does it in this remarkable fiction, the best known of which, of course, is Brave New World, 1932. Um, and Julian Huxley is, is, is running this parallel, in some ways, liter life with words and science, mm. um, but doing it in, 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 in the non-fiction genre. And there are, you know, I did, there, there were some very light and fun moments, I have to say, in, oh, res yeah. in researching this book. Oh, so I mean, book. in the book, there were moments oh, that made me laugh out loud. I yeah. hope they came through, because I certainly laughed out loud at various points, because this, it's clear that Aldous is, is, has these very successful novels uh, straight after the First World War, and then with Brave New World, he's everybody's darling. I mean, it's a phenomenal success, and then he goes on to write more and more brilliant things. A and Julian Huxley, who's a poet, publishes himself, um, you know, a reasonable poet, interesting. You know, this, this is a literary family as well, and Julian w wants to write really good science fiction. And he has a few goes, yeah. and in his papers, there's kind of hilarious attempts where he's trying to be his brother, mm -hmm. and he's trying to write science fiction, but he can't stop writing thousands of, tens of thousands <coughs> of words later, yeah. you know, none of which are that riveting. We're still <laughs> trying to get to, you know, and Aldous had this capacity to just um, contain it and tell a really good science fiction story. There's a couple of science fiction Public, published stories that Julian um, uh, succeeds with, a couple, mm. but they're nothing, nothing to match his brother's brilliance. I should throw this open for questions from the audience now, but just one last thing very quickly, very quickly. Are they just dead white men? What is their uh, legacy? What is their relevance to us now? This is for both of you, really. <coughs> um, uh, are they dead white men? Uh, well, they are, uh, yeah. They're dead, they're all white, <coughs> they're male, yeah. although there are women in the book, you're quite right. Um, really and I wouldn't mind coming back to that question. Yeah, please, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe later after mm. we have a few questions. Um, they're, they're not dead in the sense that their their ideas absolutely live with us and shape us for good and ill. And I hope I weigh both of those up in the book. So this is a, this is a family a, a, again. The the humanism that this family drives, um, whatever we think about that, they they drove that idea forward. Um, we, we, we live in a world where we now think of humans and other animals. We think of humans as in nature. We think of us um, with and alongside um, 
uh, ecologies, the word that Julian would have used, but his grandfather wouldn't have. But that is now our... Um, that is now our second nature, if I can put it that way. And I think that there's all kinds, for, for Julian's generation, this, um, the, the, the kind of environmentalism, and to use a much older phrase, conservation, that is now mainstream, um, for their generation wasn't. And I think that Julian Huxley certainly was someone who, as a writer, and a political writer, and a biologist, um, put that very much on the um, on the world's agenda. I'd echo all of that, and also say that you know both of them left with with us sort of words and concepts that we still use to think with, which is I often think one of the most powerful ways you can have a legacy is you actually invent words that, that, that become part of our language. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked about trans. Did we already mention transhumanism? transhumanism so Julian coined, it, yeah. coined transhumanism, and Thomas uh, coined agnostic and agnosticism in the 1860s to describe his philosophy, which he felt didn't yet have a, have a proper name. Now, that word has been used in, in various ways that he probably wouldn't approve of in the, in the 150 years since then. But the word agnostic is, you know, is, has been a very powerful one in the 20th century, thinking about not just religion but other topics as well. Mm. Um, so I'd be happy to talk about those mm. legacies if people wanted to. Yeah. Any questions? No? Please. Go to the women. Oh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, and, and thank you for that comment. I'm not sure that I write about the women because I am one. Um, no, and make. hilariously, it's so funny that you yeah. get that comment because um, only last week, one of my um, long-standing historian uh, colleagues, actually someone who I was an undergraduate with, um, in, in the kind of feminist and post-colonial 1990s, what a golden age that was yeah. to learn things, she said to me, what, another Bashford book on dead white men? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, that's right, this is the third or fourth one. <laughs> so, it, so actually, um, but then I have to say, she said to me, uh, um, on, she said, oh, not another book on great white men. And then she said, actually, come to think of it, they're not that great, they're only mediocre. And that's, when I, no, that's when I really took offence. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, that Thomas Henry Huxley would be apoplectic if he realised that anybody I, could I, just, I just thought you, you, you were more attentive to, you know, the, oh, this is a pejorative way of putting it, the minor characters who actually aren't really minor, they're, they're women. No, they're not and, minor. And, and, they're, and they're really important, and they're often intellectual superiors, or at least intellectual sparring partners. You know, T.H., you know, Thomas Henry Huxley, he just spars all the time with Mary Ward uh, yes. and loves it. You know, he, he gets a sort of, he's yes. intellectually excited by it. Maybe we could talk about Mary Ward because we haven't Please, yet yeah, talked yeah. about the Arnold side. We haven't even mentioned the name Arnold, I don't think. Because no. that's the other great side of this story is uh, the, the Arnold family, which is, which is the other part of, of Julian and Aldous's heritage, which gives them this extraordinary scientific and literary inheritance to grow up with, which must have been a huge burden as well as obviously a very a fruitful inspiration for them. Mm. Um, and so maybe you say more about that, but Mary Ward, mm. isn't she, is a very successful Victorian novelist who writes the great Victorian novel of Faith and Doubt, which nobody these days apart from me <laughs> and Alison have read, I think, no, called Robert Ellesmere, which is an incredible, huge, rambling, very emotional and intellectual book about a Victorian clergyman called Robert Ellesmere who loses his faith, and, and, and it goes over three, three <laughs> volumes of, of, of story, which is incredible. But she, she's a great figure um, in, in this whole picture. So That's maybe you right. could tell and us about Mary Ward and the Arnolds and where they fit That's in. That's right. And so, so Julian, Hux, uh, Julian and Aldous Huxley's mother um, was Julia 
Arnold, Julia Arnold. And she comes from the Arnold family, as in Matthew Arnold, the very mm. important 19th century poet, and Thomas Arnold of rugby, and her that was the, her grandfather, and Tom Arnold, to another Thomas Arnold was her father, a um, literary um, uh, professor. And her sister is this woman, Mary Ward, who I bet nobody's either heard of, let alone read. But were we all sitting here in this room in 1880, Ev probably um, Mary Ward's novels. She published under the unlikely name Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Yeah. Everybody would have heard of her. Li your library shelves would have been filled with her. And were we in 1880 to be in New York, she would have been being, mo she was stratospherically um, uh, well published, um, sought after her novels, were turned into plays in the States. Robert Ellsmere was reviewed by William Gladstone, who wrote a very, very oh lengthy yeah, review during right. a brief period of time when he wasn't Prime Minister. That's right. <laughs> Saving prostitutes. <laughs> and so there's this incredibly, you know, one of the things that makes the Huxleys fascinating is that there's this scientific dynasty, but they, 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 they link with and graft onto this extraordinary liter literary dynasty. And um, in, in the book, I um, write quite a lot, not only about the women, but about this literary family. And, and um, there's these sisters, Mary Ward, and Mary Arnold, and Julia Arnold. And Julia is Aldous's mother, and Julian's mother. And the family is bonded partly, as much through literature as anything else. And I learned when I was going through the archives and, and getting deeper and deeper into this family, that in fact, they're all poets. They write poetry to one another all the time. When a baby's born, when somebody dies, when somebody turns 21, every birthday, when something good happens on holidays, they're writing and sending poetry. But, and that all sounds all very well, but the point is that Mary Ward, probably the greatest literary figure before Aldous, is um, teaching them all how to write <laughs> good iambic pentameter, yeah. thank you very much. And there's all these amazing letters where she's writing to little Aldous mm. and little Julian and doing the heaviest, and the, you know, 9, 10, 11, doing the heaviest critique of their similes and their this and that and the rhythm and the note. And she's, they all take on poetry writing as a craft. And it's, a, it's actually a kind of an 18th century family thing not so much a 19th century family thing, but the, 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 this, and so actually in the book I start each chapter with a Huxley poem. Yeah. Um, so this literary angle comes in, but Mary Arnold is, Thomas Henry Huxley becomes quite friendly with her, and it's because she's probably the most learned person apart from himself. <laughs> she's learned theologically, she's learned philosophically, she sits in the Bodleian Library um, for years doing early Christian scriptural histories. This woman um, can argue with him. And yeah. she would have made a far better don than her father. <laughs> yeah. But she couldn't. But she couldn't. But she couldn't. Mm. It's, a cr it's a crazy thing. Mm. So, um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's a kind of a not incidental, but part of the learning of the Huxley family and the literary folding uh, comes through uh, many of these very interesting really women. Just, just then that um, Julian had an affair with an American poet late in life. So he, he, had, he had several affairs um, in, in quite sort of 
shoddy ways that made him feel quite ashamed, rightly ashamed. Um, but bri rather brilliantly, I think, after he died, um, May Sarton, this American poet who he had an affair with, I think wrote to Juliet, his wife, saying... Um, well, you tell it. I mean, what, what, That's he, he right. Described, described it in, in rather unflattering terms. So, so it is true, to go back a point, and yeah. to, to kind of defend him, <laughs> not that I think affairs are great things, yeah. not that, but it is to say that he was entirely honest about it with his wife, right. Juliette, this extraordinary writer, actually, on, in her own, um, uh, in her own right, and actually, they agreed. Let's put that in big inverted commas because it always worked out mm. better for him than her. That affair, you know, and he, he that affairs were okay, and that in fact this happened quite often in bird birds and creatures did this, and maybe this is a model for how. But there's an honesty about it all that in fact at at least there was honesty. But it is quite true that he had many, many, many affairs and many people were miserable. And he did argue against monogamy, didn't he? Yes. But I mean, was the, were the great crested grebes his speciality? Were they monogamous? <coughs> Seasonally. <coughs> Seasonally monogamous. Seasonally monogamous. Well, maybe that's how and so, well. in fact, okay, brackets here. Yeah. Julian Huxley was a bird specialist. Yeah. So, as a scientist, yeah. his greatest knowledge and expertise was as a bird specialist, but an ethologist, a behaviourist. And he wrote very early a famous, anybody who's an ethologist, he would know it, The Courtship Habits of the Great Crested Grebe. So it's in 1914. But he was interested in because these grebes are not, uh, they're minimally sexually dimorphous. You can't yeah. tell the difference between a male or a female. And so he becomes really interested in their rituals and so forth. Um, and uh, anyway, he, he, he definitely builds from what might be patterns in human societies by looking at um, bird and other animal behaviour, that's for sure. But take me back to the point that we're... What May Sarton said about him. What May Sarton said. So there are all these affairs going on. <laughs> I'll get to the funny bit. So there's all these Please. affairs going on, and, and one of them is with this a poet that probably none of us have ever heard of, but he's quite a distinguished American poet, May Sarton. Julian has an affair with her, and Julian and um, dies, 1975. May Sarton writes to Juliet and mm. says, you know, what they have this conversation, what do you really think about Juliet as a person? Yeah. And May Sarton says, I think he was a very spoiled baby person. Mm. And sounds like Donald Trump, the way you describe it. <laughs> and having lived with this family and with Julian for a very long time, I read that and thought, oh, that's so cruel, but right. it's also so true. And as someone who had to, I hope sympathetically um, bring in these, like all of us, flawed people, um, one of the things that was interesting as a writer about Julian and Aldous' circle is that they were, their lives were about 1920s to 1960s cultural luminaries. Their lives were built around people who were good with words and good with thinking about character. And so I, somewhere in the book I think I say that it puts poor Julian as a disadvantage because mm. all these people, like the American poet May Sarton, mm. who catches him with this cruel set of words, a very spoiled baby person, it takes a poet in a way 
to put four or five words together like that and catch somebody. And I, I, the poor man's at a kind of a biographical disadvantage. Yeah, really. <laughs> because for me, you know, wanting to write about him, there's all these clever with words people who have written about him before me and who I could just kind of pluck. Did you change your mind about the two subjects of your book, you know, when you came out of it? Because a lot of people come out, you know, write biographies and then either adore, but often hate the person they've spent the, you know, the past six years of their lives writing yeah. about. How did you no, feel? No, I don't, I don't, I neither hated them nor was I bored with them. And I have to say, my, one of my previous books was about Thomas, uh, Thomas Robert Malthus, the population guy. And what he wrote was fascinating, but as a person, boy, oh boy, was he boring. I mean, there was nothing to work with. But the Huxley family, it's tumbling out as big, bold characters, you know. Um, so, so there's neither hate nor boredom there. Thomas Henry Huxley, it'd be interesting to see what you think, thought about him personally. For me, I started imagining that I wouldn't like him, he'd be too severe and so on and so forth. <clears throat> but especially when I read through the letters between Charles Darwin and Thomas Henry Huxley, mm. these two very differently classed and placed people, but who came very, very firm, lifelong friends, there was a delicacy and a tenderness, and you have to use the word love, mm. because they did, between them. And in a way, that made me think quite differently about that. I think I arrived at this book you know, f with my, my historian's head filled with those um, unfeeling, stiff, upper-lipped mm. Victorian caricature sure. of what men were. And I don't think they were anything like that. There was a tenderness between Absolutely. these two. Absolutely, a huge tenderness and emotion between, between these men uh, writing to each other. And we're, you know, we're fortunate a lot of this correspondence is preserved, and so we can see these very emotional letters between Huxley and Darwin, mm. Darwin and Hooker, Huxley and um, Charles Kingsley. I mean, you, you made oh, use of that correspondence. So Charles Kingsley, the, the, the clergyman, socialist, Christian socialist and author of The Water Babies, who features in, in this book mm. a few times, was an incredibly important correspondent for, for Thomas Huxley around the time of the death of his son, Noel, was it, the, the child mm. who died aged about four or five. Mm. Obviously this is a, a, a heartbreaking event, but one that many, most Victorian parents went through. Um, and they have this very moving exchange about the religious and emotional impact of that event on Thomas Huxley. Um, yeah, so uh, the, these letters are full of, of emotion. So yes, Huxley says there's a superabundance of feeling, we don't need any more of it. But also, I mean, obviously, his, his, his uh, falling in love with Henrietta in Australia, this long-distance, long-term engagement that they both sort of suffered through, full of, of a very strong feeling as well. So yes, I think admirable and tender uh, person with a very puritanical streak, which I also quite like. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any more questions? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let's just take two, and then perhaps we we'll need to wrap it up. I guess. I guess I'd be interested to know who who would be the third Huxley that you would want to write about. Mm. Okay. Well done. Good question. Oh, uh, generationally, do you mean? I, I, I don't think anyone. I, oh, I, oh, any Huxley you like? Haven't mentioned. So oh well, there are many, many there, and you know, this is a family kind of liberally sprinkled with Nobel laureates, and um, you know, so there's a very, very distinguished in one line to move forward in, into the 20th century directly in the scientific line would be Andrew Huxley, who was another president of the Royal Society, um, a physiologist, a nerve specialist, and a Nobel laureate. Um, and so he, he's a half-brother, you know, so that would have been, would there have been such a great story as with Julian? Prob probably not. 
Um, so there's many, many Huxleys that keep on appearing and I keep on learning about. And um, for me, there's, there's a later 20th century generation that is the opposite to Andrew Huxley. And that's a, there's a very little known um, anthropologist called Francis Huxley, Julian's son. And for me, he was a kind of a gift, actually, in writing this book, because he, he pulls us forward into the late 20th century generation, does zoology at Oxford, unsurprisingly, but then he turns into a weirder-than-weird cultural anthropologist and is deeply inside R.D. Lang, London psychoanalysis. And he's in the West Coast, lives, spends a lot of his time in the West Coast of the States, in that LSD world, which was Aldous Huxley's world as well. And he kind of refuses the, um, you know, the, he's the opposite of the Nobel laureate line, if you can put it that yeah. way. But for me, he became especially interesting because he, people describe him now as a high animist, you know. And so for someone, for this family that starts with agnostics, one end point being a high animist who mm. writes books called you know, the age of the sacred, that's a pretty interesting kind of unexpected um, tail end to a Huxley story. It's a great story. narrative loop, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So well, you, can, can I add a footnote to that? Yeah, please. I'm desperate to, because I just read that final chapter and about Francis Huxley, which is fascinating. Yeah. In fact, the only point of interpretation that I wanted to, to challenge Alison on was, was, was this point about the sort of contrast between the, the animism of Francis Huxley and, and the agnosticism of Thomas Huxley. I think Thomas Huxley, actually, his philosophy is potentially quite mystical and, and, and yeah. the, it really is about the unknown. Beneath everything is the unknown. And even when he's talking about materialism, the laws of science and matter, in his philosophical essays he said that is just a way of talking, you know, just as much as religion is a way of talking. And beneath it is the, he says, is it not better to uh, revolve in the deeps of our mind the infinite possibilities of the unknown? Which is a very mystical statement itself. So I Thank want to put in a word Thank for you. Thomas Huxley, the mystic. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So you, you, were going, you were going to ask some questions? <clears throat> yes, thank you. I mean, it looks like a really big book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a breeze, man. It's a breeze. Now on my reading list. But I was wondering more about the motivation behind writing it in the first place. Because, <clears throat> yes, it is a book about dead white men. But I don't think people, that criticism is really about them being dead or white, but mm -hmm. about the fact that there is a superabundance of books about dead white men. Mm. And the issue is not that they were you racist or eugenicist because they were about time, blah, 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 blah. But do we need another book about people who are otherwise pretty famous, mm -hmm. um, who did scientific research on evolution, which is by no means an obscure branch of biology? So why, uh, so do we, why, the book? why this book? Uh, well, I happen to be a historian who is uh, deeply, if I can put it that way, ecumenical about what one and what any of us can write about. So in a way, there's um, what I don't like is being taken to task for writing about um, great men, because I figure that I'm the one who can. And so it is a very different argument um, to you know, making that critique of someone who hasn't come to the Huxleys via writing on um, other parts of the world, by writing about indigenous history in Australia, 
trained through feminist and post-colonial scholarship in the 1990s. If I want to write about dead white men and they're really interesting to me and they say something to me, I, I get to. And, uh, you know, so there's a way in which I completely understand the backstory to that question because I'm part of the backstory to that question. Mm. Because I've, because I, you know, my, my background as a historian comes from all those other places. Uh, and so I think that that, 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 mm, it's an odd way to put it, but there's a, there's a kind of a credit that I've earned, that I've earned. Because I, because I worked through all, all of those things, and when somebody says to me, this is a book about great white men, I know exactly where that's come from, I know the problem with it, I know what it could have been, my next book won't be that, does that, does that, um, does that mean that I have all kinds of space to say new things about them? In my view, in my view, um, yes. So, so, you know, uh, one, one of the, one of the motivations behind this book was not just about writing a 19th and 20th century, but actually it was about thinking what, what do these particular dynasty of scientists, what role do they play in this long story about imperialism in the 19th century and internationalism in the 20th century? And that's actually one of my motivations. So what is the politics um, of, of global travel, of knowledge in that imperial world and in that international world um, is something that is, drives this book forward. Maybe, I hope, makes it different to everything that we might already know about the Huxleys in particular. But they're quite interesting anchors and vehicles for that particular 19th and 20th century story as well. Well, look, thank you very much. I mean, we're going to have to wrap it up now, but um, it's all, all the time got. Um, I'm sorry if we didn't get around to answering your questions, um, and especially I'm very sorry to the people online whose questions I didn't uh, uh, ask. Um, but if you'd like to learn more about the story of the Huxleys uh, and the big themes of intellectual history we've discussed today, um, uh, the copies of Alison's book are on sale in the, in, the, in the room at the back here, and Alison will be signing copies, one hopes, um, at the back later on. So for everyone watching online, it's been great having you with us. Thank you for your thoughtful comments and questions, which I didn't propose, I'm sorry. Uh, and don't forget to uh, click the links in the chat and get a special event book discount code. All right, okay. As well as lots of in more information about the RSA's work, upcoming events, and the Design for Life strategy, how you can get involved in shaping the change we want to see in the world as an RSA fe uh, fellow. So finally, thank you very much to Alison and Thomas it's been a really excellent talk, or at least I hope it's been an excellent talk. I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's been an important discussion. So thank you all for coming along. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.